Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life.
It's not something to get rid of. Rather, the way we pay attention to self-aversion is actually the ground of the past. What our words can do to us, 
and what words can do to cultures and what words can do to generations upon generations upon generations and how we interpret these things. I was talking to my very dear friend Lou Gossett Jr., who is a five-time Oscar winner. Remember him? He was an officer and a gentleman, Roots, and lots of more others. I think his latest show that he was in was Watchman, which he did great with um, Regina. And he and I had this real heart-to-heart this morning, and he says, really, after the passing of Kobe, his daughter, and the, all the families in that helicopter crashed, at the family, and so many more, that we're really being asked to go inwards and do some personal reflection on our lives and to personally begin to look inwards and decide what is it that needs really to change? What is it that needs to be identified in such a way that it no longer gets fed consciously or unconsciously? What is it that needs some transformation, some refinement inside of your personality that needs some shifting? We have to check on that now because outside forces and sources are not going to be the cure of the soul's inner ache. And it's important that we are opened to reconstructing ourselves And moving more towards the light, towards divinity, towards sacredness, towards harmony, towards peace, towards purity. And today we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Patty Ashley, who is an international workshop presenter, author, speaker, psychotherapist, and authenticity architect. She brings a unique insight into the identification and treatment of trauma, shame, grief, and dysfunctional family patterns. But her 35 years of experience has included developing and teaching continuing educational courses for physicians, hospital wellness programs, universities, and other private organizations, and counseling individuals, couples, families, and groups in mental health agencies, psychiatric hospitals, but also private practice settings. She's the author of Living in the Shadow of the Two Good Mother Archetype and Letters to Freedom, From Fear to Love to Grace. I welcome Dr. Patty Ashley to the air. Welcome, Patty. Glad to have you on board. Hi, Sister Jenna. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. So tell us a little bit about what actually inspired you to get onto the path of psychotherapy because you sit there in a room and you listen to the aches of thousands of people, you know, it's a lot to hold, it's a lot to to comfort. So what was it in you that brought you onto such a path that so many would come to you to say, can you help? That's a great question. And yeah, it is, it is an interesting line of work to get into, and I feel like it's such a blessing because, you know, they say that studies of resiliency show that people who can give back are the ones who are the most resilient from trauma. And for me, losing my father from a sudden heart attack when I was 11 years old, a man who had the deepest heart, (laughs) the kindest, gentlest ways, died suddenly when I was 11. And I could not really find a space to talk about that. I was told to be grateful and happy because he's with God in heaven, you know, because of my Catholic upbringing. Mm-hmm. I was confused. I, I spent my, you know, middle high school years 
wondering what happened, where is he, where is God, who is God, why can't I go there? And I wanted to be a, I knew in high school, I read a book about, you know, a psychotherapist. I told the guidance counselor I wanted to do that, and she said, you're not smart enough, because I wasn't. In high school, I was depressed because I'd lost my father. So I ended up taking a path in special education and early childhood education and parent education, got very much into the experience of being a mom, which is how my first book, Living in the Shadow of a Too Good Mother, emerged, and just this feeling of, you know, how hard it is for moms to feel good enough. And finally got my Ph.D. in psychology in 2002 and have been a licensed clinician here in Colorado ever since, and I love it. It feels like I took a winding path, but all the places I visited along that path have informed me in my work in such a way that, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to do what I do every day. It's so interesting how sometimes when something tragic happens to us, we dig deeper to find some answers because that feeling of tragedy doesn't really feel like it's a normal experience. Wouldn't you say like it doesn't feel normal? And we find ourselves in particular positions in life that we're like, wow, you know, how did I get here? How did I get here? Your signature model of authenticity architecture is said to create some long-term changes in the brain, but also in the central nervous system. And it's been helping people to break through a lot of um, limited, limited belief systems and barriers. Could you share with our listeners more about this, the authenticity architect, and how it actually works on us? I'd love to. And I also want to say that what you were saying about, you know, not having to be perfect, but telling the truth is such a important statement because I think that's what it's all about here. It's about telling the truth and being able to be human and love our imperfections. And I think, you know, when we look back at the old parenting belief systems of do as I say, not as I do, you should be ashamed of yourself, don't be angry, you know, these were the belief systems that went on for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. I don't even know. Alice Miller researched the 18th century child-rearing textbooks, and they were very punitive and punishing and authoritarian, and they really were set up to break the will of the child. So in the last century, you know, 1950-ish or so, and we get, you know, research, and we understand how children develop, and they don't think like adults, and they need a lot of nurturing and mirroring. You know, attachment studies um, showed that, and then we backed up the attachment studies more recently with the brain scans that you know proved all the attachment theorists who were just looking at how children develop were actually correct. We're looking now at the brain and what happens. And what happens in the brain is the right brain develops in the first three years and it's nonverbal, it's sensory, and it's all about feeling connected and feeling loved. And it happens through being seen by the primary caregiver and the primary people in the world. And that little infant and toddler then gets develops a sense of, hey, I'm enough, I, I'm good enough. But because these old parenting practices are still in our DNA, they're showing now we're carrying 14 generations of ancestral trauma in our DNA and trying to change these old patterns. When you talk about telling the truth, You know, I look at the word familiar, which, you know, one day I had this big aha with a client and we looked at the word on the board and it was family liar. 
and you think about all these family lies that were told, you know, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to grow up and do this. One of my best teachers and mentors used to say, children come into the world very much like a packet of seeds with no cover on the front. And it's a parent's job, very much like a gardener's, to raise the seed into its fullest potential and give it the adequate nutrients and water, air, and light. It's not our job to raise a rose into a carnation or a carnation into a rose. So most of us are raised in these families where we're still just repeating this unconscious repetition of trying to be good parents and tell our kids who we think they ought to be. And we as adults need to pause and stand back and do just what you were saying earlier. You know, let's take a deep inner look at what is in our unconscious sensory memory. Because as the right brain develops in those early years, it's nonverbal, and then the verbal, the left side, the logical side of the brain, starts to make up stories. Like, uh, in order for my mother to love me, I better be a good kid. I better do the right thing. I better keep my mouth shut. Or, you know, I'm going to act out to get my mother's attention because she doesn't seem to care. Or Mm. father or other caregiver. I don't want to specifically say it's all about moms. It's really about the people who are in a young person's life early on that set up these experiences in the brain. And then we have a feeling of not being safe. So I'm making up stories in order to be lovable. And then that affects the nervous system and the vagus nerve, which goes all around into our heart and our digestive system. So that's a long answer, I know, but authenticity architecture is really about let's get in and dig up, let's excavate some of these old family lies that got set up and give ourselves permission to look at what is our personal truth, what is our authenticity, and then to be aware that it takes a while to change those patterns because we can't just change, change them by by having the idea of, well, I'm, I'm just not going to do that anymore. How many of us say, I want to stop that thought, but it just doesn't stop, and that's why we know now because it's in the nervous system and it's in the sensory right brain. So we have to do, feel into what it is we want to change and find things in our lives that bring us joy and gratitude as we embody what is our authentic truth. Um, okay. So it's... it's it's a commitment people have to make to themselves because it's not quick. It's not a quick and easy fix. And I think we live in a country or a time right now where we want everything quick and easy. Yeah, it's our conditioning now. For some folks who are still trying to understand the deeper languaging of subconscious hidden things, is there a way that you can share with us like very basic? For example, I can tell you that I like you. That's the conscious mind, right? But my subconscious is the other thought that says, oh, I just wish this person would get out of my face. That's the energy that's being fed. And sometimes I feel that folks aren't aware of what they're co-creating in their personality because they're not paying attention to that quieter voice that's coming in, which you mentioned like it's that, it's that subconscious. So that subconscious is that part of you that is really, I would say, your most truthful self. And would you concur? And that's the part of you that you really need to start to establish a relationship with and to be able to show up based on what that thought process is signaling to you in order for the change to happen. Did that make any sense? Absolutely. And I think because all of these old familiar stories have gotten set up and wired into our brain by the time we're seven, 
We grow mm-hmm. up and we have no idea what 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 computer program is running the show. <laughs> so we got to kind of take a look at that. And the exercise that I use is called the excavation exercise. Take a deep sea dive, C S E A. And it's based on, you know, a familiar I statement that we that has been used for nonviolent communication, but I found that I statements are more effective individually for people to use as journal introspective exercises. So I broke them down into these three parts, which is one, what's the situation? What's happening that's triggered me, that that's given me this experience of, oh, I just don't really want to, this person just, you know, sends me over the edge or whatever. Write down exactly what happened in that situation briefly. And then I have a feeling list on my website and, and in my books that I use. And Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, did a study recently, a survey on people and you know how many emotions they have and to name them. And she said the average number that people could name was three, and it was happy, sad, and pissed. And <laughs> so she said there's a lot more than that. And so there are. There's more than I can even fit on my one feeling word sheet. So I really encourage my clients to look at this sheet. We, I do this all the time to find the emotion, find what is underneath this, you know, angry or frustrated feeling. And then they get to things like unloved, abandoned, unworthy, and now we're getting to more of the deeper unconscious layers. And then I ask them to aspire. What's their aspiration? What is it they want? That's the A and the C. So what's the situation? What's the emotion? What do I aspire to? Meaning, you know, if if this could be a different way, what would it look like to me without any attachment to the outcome or getting necessarily what we want in that moment? Because a lot of times people, they stuff what they feel and what they want because they're, what's familiar to them is they're not going to get it. So why bother, right? So I encourage people to, let's be honest with ourselves. What is it we really want? Let's take a deep sea dive, excavate these parts of ourselves and give ourselves permission to look. And it's an amazing exercise because it seems so simple, and yet it's so enlightening for people to go, oh, wow, I do feel unloved. And then later we do a connect the dots eventually. Well, let's think back to when you felt abandoned as a kiddo. You know, let's let's talk about right. that. And then we right. connect that and we do some healing around that, and we talk about, you know, you can't go back and change what happened. How do you not abandon yourself now? What You know, how do you... How are you abandoning yourself, and how can you start being more available to yourself? So that's the process. Interesting. My work, yeah. Can you speak to us about when you just don't know what it is that's getting in the way, yet you're not happy or you're depressed, things aren't working, and every time you turn in, there's not even someone you can blame. You can't see what you're doing wrong. What would you call that space? What would you call that place for that person? What's going on inside of that person at that time? Well, I would imagine that it's a story that was made up early on of not being able to know. Like, it's just too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. For instance, a client yesterday was saying that, you know, this girl that she was attracted to sort of did some things that, you know, set her off and she didn't. She was surprised that she, you know, she can't trust people and, you know, this and that and the other. But she was relieved because now she knows that this 
girl isn't, you know, somebody that she is going to be in a relationship with. And she's a high school kiddo. And I said, well, I would imagine you're kind of also in that disappointed and sad. And she goes, well, I don't want to go there. You know, I just like, <laughs> I'm just glad. Yeah. And and we talked more about that and she said, Well, because sometimes when I do get sad I don't like to be there so I don't allow myself to go there. Sometimes I can't even cry at movies and then I think there's something wrong with me. So so here's her story that she set up is her feelings are bad, you know, the sadness it doesn't feel good. So I try and cut that off and then I wanna be in more positive energy, being relieved not really paying attention to this other part of myself. So for me, it's really about embracing paradox. We think that, you know, we live in a in a culture right now where it's about everything has to be all good, and if it's not all good, then it's all bad, and, and we, want, we try and pick sides. So I really encourage people to find ways to embrace both and. So I said, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's okay to be relieved, you know, and, and you've learned some things, and it's okay to be a little to be sad and disappointed as well. And um, and I don't know if that answered your question, but I think the excavation exercise is really insightful for people to get to that place too. Because again, whatever story we made up when we were little, and I usually try and go back and encourage my clients to think before age seven. You know, a lot of times they'll say middle or high school, which is fine, certain things that happen. What is it before age seven that taught you that, you know, it wasn't okay to listen to Express yourself. your emotions, yeah. It's interesting how we're holding on to so many memories, and I felt that it's not necessarily what we have been through that's so traumatic, and yes, a lot of the things that we've gone through have gone against our personal peace. I also have come to realize that it's my attachment to the event of the past that makes it even more painful, and, and I want to separate the event transpired between me and someone or me and something versus the energy of attachment in the way that I interpreted that scenario and the way I carry that interpretation for decades to come. And I feel like when we are sitting with our own company, that energy that we have fed knowingly or unknowingly becomes so forceful so intense that we don't know or we don't think we have enough inner abilities to be able to cope with it when all it really is is an attachment to a story. And it almost feels like what we are being ushered to experiment with is to transform that attachment, which is driven with fear, into love. And in your book, you do give us an opportunity to look into that spectrum and I would love if you can tell us a little bit about your new book, The Letters to Freedom, and what really was its main message that you were hoping that we could all kind of take away with. Mm, yeah, thank you. It is my maybe full circle story about losing my partner to a sudden heart attack, the exact same way I lost my father when I was 11. And he and I moved into a relationship when I was in my late my mid-50s, and he died when I was 58, which is the same age my father was when he died. And there were so many synchronicities that uh, they both were found sudden heart attack on the living room floor. And his name was Lawrence Freedom. And he was 
man so full of heart. He had lost his wife two years prior to him and I moving into a relationship. I had known him for 20-some years and always had a lot of respect for his work in the field of addiction. And I moved into a relationship with a man in a way I'd never done before because it impacts us when we lose, when we have trauma. And for me, losing the man, my father, who was the sweetest, kindest man in the world, suddenly like that, and not being able to have anybody talk to me and, and help me process it until I went into therapy in my 30s, you know, my relationships were impacted. And so I felt like at this time in my life, I had figured it all out. And, you know, this was going to be different. And he was just so amazing and wanted us to just live happily ever after. And and we went through a little struggle towards the end, and then he died suddenly. And so I sat at my computer and wrote for months because I didn't want to forget, one, some of the sweet love stories. And I also was looking for synchronicity. Like, we're both very intuitive. How do we not know this was going to happen, you know? And we wanted to figure I wanted to, I just wanted to make sense of something that was just so shocking. And months later, after writing the stories, I thought about my work as a therapist and how I became a therapist because I wanted to help people with grief. And I was hoping that my personal story would help people. So it came out, it was released on his birthday, what would have been his birthday, April 9th of 2019. And I've been putting together a big virtual launch party that I'm releasing on February 4th, next Tuesday, which is will be the 50th anniversary of my father's death. And I've interviewed 18 authors, Joan Bornsenko, Harville Hendricks and his wife, um, Sue Frederick. list goes on and on and on of people who work in the areas of love and relationship and grief. And I'm offering that as a free gift so people can buy the, when people buy the book on February 4th because it's just such a honor for me to, as your first question was, you know, the work that I do and how I sit with people in their pain You know, it's an honor to me to be able to give people my book and then offer these other wonderful luminary people's insights in these videos and um, honor, you know, 50 years of having lost my father and the gift that I got from losing my partner the same way, believe it or not. It was a gift. Again, the paradox, it hurt. Yes. Terrible. And at the same time, you know, I really believe and some of the people I interviewed you know spoke to this about how grief actually opens us up to love seeing more deeply so, yeah I that's sometimes my wish that we would just be open to love because it's just what it is and I'm also guilty that sometimes I tend to find my greatest strengths when I am going through my roughest moments and I have had moments where Everything is fine, Patty, and I go in to try to find more to fix and to adjust, and the energy is just not there to push me. And it's not until I get into some sort of a stuff that I was attached to that gets taken away from me. I'm like, oh, my God, what just happened? I just have to, you know? And I've found that to be very interesting. Even though I have moments where I do go in, I'm doing some nice work, it's not as deep as it has been when stuff is just hitting the fan. Have you had that feeling too? Absolutely. We definitely need the two-by-four, it seems. It's <laughs> the setup, the duality that we live in on the planet right now. And I think about that yeah. sometimes because, you know, again, I my 
father was the sweetest, kindest, gentlest man, and my mom, too, was just, you know, amazingly, you know, loved the Blessed Mother. And, you know, I, I was raised in this, this family of just deep love, and I and so my heart is really about how can we all love each other more, and I think about that sometimes. I imagine a world, you know, we all talk about, wouldn't it be nice to have harmony and world peace, you know, and I think about that, and mm-hmm. I think, yeah, well, that would be nice if we all loved each other would be great and then I think well we don't do it that way and we tend to do it in the way you just described and that's just the reality today I mean I still am hopeful that we can eventually evolve into a consciousness what I think is like a Christ consciousness in a sense you know that unconditional love and and heart that I think he embodied as did other you know enlightened masters but right now we live in this duality, and so absolutely the two-by-four yeah. is usually what, you know, gets us to to look a little deeper. So I you don't know. know. They, Good question. You know, they also say that um, when we're in that comfort zone, it's that space where the decline starts to take place. And I'm just looking at even America pre this current leadership that, mm-hmm. Something we kept hearing is how complacent we had become as a country because, you know, there was some sort of a morals and ethics and values that were at least being portrayed and people just took it all for granted. And now we're up against, you know, opportunities to check ourselves much deeper because people and things are being a little bit aggressive and in a way going against the original nature of the soul and the whole country's at an uprising. Like, everyone's got an issue now. Everyone's trying to fight for something they believe in. And I'm just fascinated by that process of how we tend to wake up when the stuff starts to hit the fan. And we just don't seem to be awake when it's okay. So maybe it's supposed to be that way, yeah? That we're just well, it is right to... now. I mean, again, yeah. I'm an eternal optimist. My hope is... You know, we it that it does open us up. It's really a collective heartbreak. Um, Marion Williamson, I heard her speak to that years ago. You know, the collective heartbreak, and mm-hmm. and I think the things I talk about in the Fear to Love to Grace Summit with all the authors is grace and you know breaking our hearts open to something more. There's a Sufi saying or prayer that says, "Break my heart open to a higher love." And I think that when our hearts break, we have a choice, and it's a choice point. We can turn inward, we can you know, move into addiction and other distractions and talk ourselves out of it or whatever, or we can dive into it and feel it and feel the transformation and the heartbreak, and we open to something so much greater. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting that you say that. I mean, why do we do it this way and does it have to be this way? I don't know, but it is the way we do it. And, and again, if you know, my work is really to encourage people to step in to have the courage to step into the heartbreak because we feel like right. it's a client that I mentioned earlier. Just, I don't want to get sad, so I want to just be relieved that, you know, it didn't work out. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to go into that. I don't want to experience deep heart inside me because it's so fragile. But yet the Is that what it is, though, Patty? Is it because when we get into that place of sadness, it forces us to look inwards and see ourselves for really who we are at that moment? Or, I mean, that that's something I've, I've not visited. Is it because sadness 
forces us or directs us to say, now look at you, look into you, see you, not what others are seeing or not what you want them to see, but see you. How are you? Where are you? What are you doing? And that's something that, you know, maybe we just never thought sadness becomes the precursor to help us to get to know ourselves better. Well, I think you go back to what I was saying earlier with Alice Miller and the earlier parenting beliefs where kids were talked out uh-huh. of their feelings. Don't be sad. Don't be angry. Stop crying before I give you something to cry about. And so what the setup then in the unconscious mind is whatever I'm feeling is bad and I better not feel it. And again, this is all unconscious and we grow up and it's running the show, but it's way in that deep sea dive somewhere that you know, we need to excavate to give ourselves permission. All feelings are okay, but all behavior isn't. It's one of my favorite lines that I've used forever. And so to just say, let's check in. What does it feel like in my body? What am I experiencing? What is it? Let's look at this feeling word sheet. Let's be with ourselves. I don't think we have language for it because unless we're raised in a family where, I mean, my kids and their friends, you know, always say to me, like, you know, <laughs> they when, I, when they were little, they, they thought I was, you know, just odd but now now they're all in their 30s and they're like we learned so much you know we learned about our feelings from you because I would always I would always use feeling words with them you know I'd use I statements you you know I'm feeling scared that you're gonna you know slip and hurt yourself on the sidewalk you know Mm -hmm. when it's or, you know, I'm worried, or I would reflect back what they're feeling, you know, if they were in conflict with a friend, I'd say, that's really hard, you're really feeling sad, you're really feeling betrayed, and they go, yeah, 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 and then they learn what they're feeling, they put a word to it, and then later on in life, they're like, oh, yeah, there's that feeling, and it's okay to have it, but most of us are still, I mean, it's still happening, and I don't know how to get this point, this is big motivation for me, is how to get this across to people because it's so subtle and it's so okay to talk to kids in a way that is very shaming but we don't sanction it as shaming in our culture right now like in the grocery store the other day a woman said to this kid in the shopping cart must have been her her aunt or a friend of the family she goes I don't know how your mother puts up with you (laughs) and I thought oh my god I looked at the kiddo and she was just like slumped over with like this Days look in her eye, laughing. But we don't talk about how wrong that is. We just think it's, oh, well, you know, it's funny. I'm just kidding. But kids don't get it. They don't know fantasy from reality until they're seven or eight. We've learned that, thank goodness, from research. And those are the messages that get set up early on, that my feelings are bad, and so I grow up and I don't even know what I'm feeling. And if I did, it must be wrong anyway. So then the shame mm-hmm. spiral. So as adults, that's really the excavation at work is in the reconstructing of the authentic self is excavating, you know, all feelings are okay. You know, all behavior isn't. Just because you're angry at somebody doesn't mean you can, like, you know, tell them off or whatever. You need Indeed. to accept that I'm angry. And, my, you know, I have a six-step um, process of problem solving and working with anger and all that. So just to be aware and deepen yeah. our self-awareness. And again, I wish there's a way to have more conversations, you know, in the world about this. I really appreciate being able to do this with you because I feel like we need to really talk about these things a little bit more. I agree with you 100%. Before we end our wonderful conversation, you've said that it's really important for us to know what we don't want in order to know what we do 
want. Could you elaborate on this? Yeah, we really notice what we don't want more than what we do want. I mean, like, and I, again, this is why my winding path of doing special education, early childhood education, and parent education was helpful because learning from kiddos, there are divine teachers, there are greatest teachers. And so old parenting practices would go, stop that, don't do that, you shouldn't do that, you should be ashamed of yourself, don't, 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 don't. And what I learned from my amazing early childhood teacher, Catherine Kersey, was that we have to reframe that. What is it I do want? So if I don't want a kid to be hitting another kid, what am I going to teach this kiddo instead? How am I going to help them develop something different? Because they don't know. So again, back to what we were talking about earlier. So there's a setup to now become an adult and One, I don't know what I want, and I was told I was bad for what I did do. So as adults, we can go, well, I don't want that, and he makes me so mad, and I wish I could have that, and why nothing ever works. I suggest to my clients they make a list of all those things, and then for everything we don't want, there's always something we do want, and then how do we language that? For example, I don't want to be arguing with my husband all the time. Okay, let's write that down, and that's that's a reasonable thing to notice. So I want to communicate with more respect. Okay, Mm -hmm. so let's come up with some tools on how we can do that. And then we put the energy there as opposed to, I'm just so frustrated because I'm always arguing with my husband. And, you know, and then the more we focus on what it is we don't want, the more we get of what we don't want. And so we really have to give ourselves the other script and put Mm -hmm. the energy. I like that. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Tell us where we can get more information about you and your upcoming book. And thank you so much, Patty. It's been a delight having you on air and having this very rich exchange with you today. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. I'm so grateful to to talk with you. I feel like your work is so important. I am at pattyashley.com, and my uh, name, Patty, is spelled with an I, so it's P-A-T-T-I-A-S-H-L-E-Y. And get ready for February 4th when they can go buy the book and then put in a a password to get 18 interviews with all the authors. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a delight. And come back on again after the book has reached a top bestseller. And let's talk a little bit more about how you're feeling then. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you, Sister Jenna. Same here. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. So I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Um, It's been really beautiful talking with Patty. And do remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. So let's do that. And um, take good care. Bye-bye. Peace.
Cause me pain. 